Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 25 in our series on American history. A reminder to those of you that are enjoying these podcasts on history that I also do. I also have a series on world history. I also write blogs and I post them weekly on my website, ceconsella.com. You can also sign up to have those blogs sent to you before they actually post. So in podcast 24, as I put, in it, we, we, we paused the moment the podcast began after I did a quick review of the prior one. I paused and I, I reviewed what the Washington administration had done thus far, specifically with Alexander Hamilton. And I asked you if the actions taken by the president and his secretary of the treasury were quote unquote legal or constitutional or not. And then in answering that, we started to unpack these theories of what we call strict versus broad constructionist theory. So we discussed that in the prior podcast, as well as the Whiskey Rebellion, which is the only time to date that an American sitting president led American forces truly into harm's way or into battle. We then see Washington stepping down after two terms, but never explaining what he meant by that, whether again, personal or political. But ultimately, the grandfather, the grandmaster, the architect who orchestrated the Revolutionary War from the military side died on December 14, 1799 with the last two words that are known to have been come from his mouth, tis well. That said, we start now podcast 25 with the Adams administration. We don't start it because, of course, Washington died. At this point, Adams had been president for, for a little over two years. So Adams being elected in 1796, it wasn't a, an election with a lot of surprises or bells and whistles, or even people gasping the fact that he won versus Thomas Jefferson, who received the second largest amount of votes. Partly because Washington was a Federalist, so was Adams, his vice president. So what we're seeing is 12 years at this point with Adams, if he can live out one term and whether he gets reelected or not, what Americans witnessed was a continuation of the same political mindset, federalist to federalist. Same way again in modern times we see from Democrat to Democrat or Republican to Republican. However, before we unpack and get into the Adams administration, let me first off flesh out there what's going on with John Adams and his wife. The reason being is that they would be the first president and first lady to reside physically at the White House. His term will start in Philadelphia, but it'll end in the newly incorporated city called Washington, D.C., our nation's headquarters, our national capital. Please remember that we are talking still 
a number of states that is so small in terms of how far west we go that Washington, D.C., with land being given up by Maryland as well as by Virginia, it is strategically located in the middle of our country. Because oftentimes I'll get questions that if you look where Paris is located or Madrid, Rome, they by and large are in the middle of their countries. Well, number one, that's for defense before modern air forces and modern technology. A nation's capital was put in the interior of the country. Ours is too, Washington, D.C., However, when we expand and expand and expand, we're not going to relocate the nation's capital every time. So that's the reason why it has still remained on the far eastern side of our, of our lower 48 states. So when Washington, excuse me, John Adams and his wife, Abigail, move into the White House, it is ironically enough right after he learns that in his bid for re-election, he lost. So our first occupants were not the happiest of couples. With John Adams, again, not only realizing that he lost his bid for re-election, but what added to the pain and the embarrassment of that is to find out that it was an anti-federalist who beat him. And to add more salt to that already blistering wound, it was none other than his own vice president who beat him. And then to top it off, his at one time closest friend and ally. It truly was a disappointing several months that John Adams and his wife Abigail would reside in the White House, but they are considered to be our first occupant. It was also sad and frustrating for other reasons, though, that had nothing to do with politics. You see, through the past couple of centuries, the states of Maryland and Virginia have been given much praise because of the fact that they, quote-unquote, gave up or donated land in the interest of the nation's capital. Well, let's grab a topographical map. Let's get a map of Washington, Washington D.C., especially a 3D one. And when you, when you zoom out of that, what you see is a common denominator between the land that Virginia gave up and the land that Maryland gave up. They bought they basically were given bottom of the barrel land. Washington DC physically is significantly lower than all of the land around it. It essentially was swampland. It was by and large considered useless by the governors of Maryland and Virginia. <laughs> Thanks very much governors uh, Button up your shirt here. We don't want your heart falling out with all your generosity. That really was the land that Washington, D.C. was founded on. It was swampland. Yes, architects and engineers did their best to try to drain the territory as much as possible. But you couldn't fight Mother Nature with her torrential rains that started in late spring and continued through the fall. As we know, even through our most recent and modern American history, it's not unforeseen to see a hurricane whip through the area and soak Washington, D.C. So in the night that George, excuse me, John Adams and his wife Abigail moved into the White House, it wasn't finished. The East Wing was still studded out 
exposed to the elements. The West Wing, not the modern-day West Wing, but the western half of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, by and large, was finished. But even the front doors weren't added on until just before John and Abigail showed up. As a result, and to make matters worse, John and Abigail show up on a night when it's just torrential downpours. Hours and hours of rain. And they get inside with muddy, wet feet, work their way up an unfinished staircase, and attempt to, and now mind you, this is in mid-November, early to mid-November, mind you, they're getting into their bedroom in a very cool and damp room. It's amazing either one of them came down and died from pneumonia or something else or something worse, right? However, the real frustration and out-and-out fear and anger would wait until morning. When John and Abigail rose, the first time that a president of the United States and the first lady were waking up in the morning in a house that American presidents would continue to occupy for well over two centuries, Abigail patiently waited for her husband, the president of the United States, the second president, John, to get dressed. He was taking a little longer than usual. He told her to go ahead down and hopefully that there would be some semblance of a breakfast ready for them when they got to the main floor. Abigail left the bedroom, went through her sitting room and changing room, down the hallway, got to the staircase and started to come downstairs. She grabbed the staircase with her right hand and braced herself on the wall with the left hand as she began to think she was getting dizzy or woozy. She didn't feel it, but clearly the floor below her was moving. No, not the staircase. The staircase was nice and firm. There was no problem there. That's what confused her. But when she looked towards the floor where the staircase emptied to, she thought she saw the floor moving in a series of undulations or waves. And she, and she blinked. The light was barely coming in after sunrise, so there wasn't much light. She works her way further down the staircase until she lets out a blood-curdling scream. An absolute blood-curdling scream that brought the president, still only half-dressed, running down the hallway with his arms out, thinking that his wife had fallen down the stairs, only to find her sitting on the third stair from the bottom and slowly working her way back up in sheer horror of the sight in front of her. Yes, there is a reason why Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States. But it's also known as the world headquarters or world capital for something else that was unbeknownst to any of the occupiers of the White House or the Capitol up to this point. And that was for having one of the largest breeds of cockroaches. You see, with the pouring rains the night before, the roaches were looking for high ground, anywhere where they could dry themselves. And the White House, well, that was just the perfect opportunity and the perfect place for them to wade through the evening and bathe their time waiting for the rains to stop before they could scurry away to find their food the following morning. So as the sun came up, the cockroaches were also waking up and they were attempting 
to scatter. Absolutely terrifying Abigail Adams. And of course, who could blame her? To this day, ladies and gentlemen, if you were to Google Washington, D.C.'s problems with cockroaches generally will fill the void. It will be one of the prompts that comes up. May not be the first one, but you'll see it in the menu suggestions that drops down below because it is still a continuous problem in Washington, D.C. to this day. Yes, we have much better ways of sealing our houses, of getting orkin and other pest control, but there's a reason why the, the cockroaches were here long before us, going back to the dinosaurs, and will probably be here long after us humans have somehow figured out a way to get rid of ourselves and ultimately cause our own demise, right? And the bottom line is, is you can do everything with these structures you want. You can get all kinds of pest controls you want. One of the things that does not change is the physical location of Washington, D.C., which is still sandwiched below neighboring states of Maryland and Virginia. So again, Mrs. Adams clearly was one who did not approve of this new house located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Perhaps the infestation of roaches was sadly a foreshadowing or a foreboding, if you will, of a very, very dim outset with John Adams when he first came to the White House was the fact that his vice president was none other than Thomas Jefferson. Again, up to that point, they are still close friends and allies. They realize that they have differing political opinions, but still there is general affection and fondness for one another and respect for each one's role during the American Revolution, the writing of the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, which followed. Even though both of them were out of the country at that time of the writing of the Constitution, again, Jefferson was our first ambassador to France, as well as uh, John Adams to England for us on our behalf. However, Adams fully expected that Jefferson, as vice president, would behave the way Adams did when he was Washington's vice president. For the most part, John Adams did not always agree with every legislative motion that George Washington authored or, or made. And when it came for Washington's proposals to be ratified, either a thumbs up or a thumbs down in the House, Adams was powerless because the vice president of the United States, per the Constitution, gives absolutely no authority to the vice president over the House of Representatives affairs. But as we know, that that is not the case with the Senate. So anytime the Senate became deadlocked in a tie, either supporting Washington's measure or not, John Adams always broke the tie by voting in favor of what his boss wanted, even when he personally disagreed. Therefore, when Adams was elected the second president of the United States, because he received the second most votes after Washington, now with Washington not running again in the election of 1796, Adams received the most votes. Jefferson received the second most. However, Jefferson, from the very beginning, looked for any opportunity to undercut and pull the rug out of John Adams, any and every chance that he had.
When there was a deadlock once again or a tie in the United States Senate over a proposal by John Adams, Jefferson was known to side with the opposition, even if he agreed with John Adams. Whether this was because of personal, egotistical spite, the fact that you, Adams, received more votes than I did and I'm the lowly VP, we really don't know. But the damage was done right from the onset with Adams as president and Jefferson, who had a different political philosophy as the vice president. Put that into modern comparison. That would be like Trump winning in 2016 and Hillary Clinton becoming his vice president. Sure. Yeah, that would be great to see. Sure. A lot of agreement, a lot of work to get done there. And how about in 2020? Trump loses, but Biden wins. Oh, Trump, now you're the vice president. But hey, look on the bright side. At least you're still involved with Washington politics, even though you're way off to the sidelines. That was clearly one huge flaw in the writing of the Constitution by the Founding Fathers. You remember when I said earlier, several podcasts ago, when we reviewed the Constitution, it was not a perfect document. Well, this was arguably one of the largest blemishes on the Constitution was how we chose our vice president. So that's the uphill battle that Adams is going to have to fight, is Jefferson as his VP. And it is a fight that, as we know, he will ultimately lose. Not only because Jefferson will be fighting him every step of the way, but because word was finally getting out that Washington was no longer in command of the Oval Office, not that it was referred to in that, in that time in the way we do today. But word started to travel around the world that George Washington had gone into retirement. Hmm. The monarchs of France and Spain and England said to themselves as they scratched their heads. But I remember that Whiskey Rebellion. I remember that President George Washington turning his own weapons on his own people because they weren't behaving properly. Lest we want to get involved and have his guns pointing at us, he may be retired, but he may not be forgotten. In fact, I'm sure he's not forgotten. And to add to that, John Adams didn't want him forgotten because John Adams leaned on the former president to help him to continue to bolster American armed forces, specifically with the redesigning of an entire United States Navy. Washington did assist from afar, but Washington was smart enough to know that you, old boy, you, Adams, you're the one that needs to do this. You are the commander in chief. You don't want to rely on me now. But regardless, Mother Nature would call John uh, George Washington home and again on December 14, 1799, in the middle of Adams' first and only term. And that's when the knives would come out from the countries in Europe that had their beefs with this newly forming American enterprise in this independent country. France at that point, upon hearing George Washington's death and receiving confirmation, turned hostile towards the United States and started harassing U.S. merchant and naval vessels anywhere across the Atlantic Ocean. It be, they engaged in a term of which we call impressment. Impressment, while that may seem to have kind of a a positive connotation. In this case, it's a negative one. French merchants and French naval forces would force themselves on American merchant and naval vessels 
and in some cases ransack the ship, taking any goods. Other times they would take American soldiers and American businessmen on board the French ship and sink the American ships. In some cases, they left everyone on board after ransacking and stealing all they could from the American vessels, and then would destroy one side of the ship, either the starboard or the port side, sending that boat or that ship down to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. This couldn't be tolerated. In fact, even if you were not directly involved with overseas commerce, you would be paying for this. Even if you didn't live near the American East Coast, you were paying for this because it was driving insurance costs up over 500% because of the fear of French impressment. What could John Adams do? This is where we get into some myth versus reality in our interpretation of early American history. Because if I were to stop right now and I could ask you, the listener, as I do my classes when my students are in front of me, what did John Adams do in response? Time and time again, students will say, well, didn't he launch into, didn't he get right into a war with France? Maybe it's because the war was so notoriously lopsided and ill-fought is the reason why it dominates American history. But the fact of the matter is war was a distant second option to the Adams administration. He tried several different ways, offering different diplomatic overtures with France, but they were all abysmal failures, including the XYZ affair, where he sent some prominent, Adams sent some prominent statesmen over to France in order to try to figure out a way out of this French impressment and harassment on the high seas. Even though we did nothing wrong, Adams was still looking for a diplomatic overture. And the French not only ignored the American statesmen and diplomats that were over there, they derogatorily, derogatorily referred to them as Mr. X, Mr. Y, and Mr. Z. In other words, their names don't even mean anything to us. And it was beyond egg on the Adams administration face, right? That's when John Adams felt as though that he could do nothing but now resort to the second option, war. Is war not a continuation of policy by other means? Ben Clausewitz. But here was the problem for John Adams. Fight a war with what military? Yes, America did have somewhat of a decent size, relatively well-trained land force, but our naval forces were nothing to speak of. In fact, in some parts of the country, they were non-existent. So what he launched is what became known as a quasi-war. A war not fought militarily overseas, but rather a war that's fought diplomatically at home. You see, Adams was smart enough to know there was no way he was going to successfully get an American army six weeks journey across the Atlantic Ocean and quote-unquote invade France? Not likely. Have these meager naval forces wait for an opportunity to trap the French forces on the high seas? We have no history of training for that. So Adams, by and large, felt as though his hands were tied and had no other recourse 
but to turn the diplomatic knives into France rather than attempting to try to actually launch forces onto France physically. That would launch a spew of domestic problems that John Adams ultimately would never be able to get out from underneath of. It became known as what was called the Alien and Sedition Acts, a colossal failure of the Adams administration, again, ladies and gentlemen, in retrospect. Please know there is not a president of the United States through to Biden in his infancy presidency that have not had colossal failures, even if they were only one-term presidents. We know that, however, because we can put our rose-colored glasses and look in the rearview mirror. They don't have that luxury when they are trying to decide how to act, either take option A, option B, or others. Remember, too, that by the time a problem reaches the presidents of the president of the United States desk, it's not a matter of a good option or a bad option. It's usually a difference between a colossally bad option and an unbelievably worse option. In this case, Adam chose the diplomatic overtures here in the States. The Alien and Sedition Acts briefly consisted of four different parts. The first was the Alien Enemies Act. And that stated, and I'm summarizing, of course, that if the United States is at war with any country, visitors from that enemy country, of course, in this case, France, are to be deported immediately. That was the Alien Enemies Act. The Alien Friends Act stated the following. Anyone suspected of illegal acts within the United States could be arrested and tried at a later date. So much for a speedy trial. Do you hear the crunching sound of our amendments under that? Well, that's what Adam's detractors would certain critics would point out. He also passed the Neutrality Act, that if the United States is at war with a country, citizens here on a visa could not apply for citizenship for 14 years versus the usual five years. And finally, the Sedition Act, that if the United States is in a hostile relationship with one or more countries, United States citizens could be arrested for any negative press releases against any elected officials. There's your First Amendment rights collapsing under the heels of President John Adams. These would be the four acts that would ultimately doom the Adams presidency. So I ask you, are you surprised? You might say on the surface, well, of course not. Any president that goes after our First Amendment and Bill of Rights, of course they're going to be a one-term president. Of course they're going to be doomed for failure. Really? Let's look at our most popular presidents. The presidents who are considered great presidents, not even near great. I am talking greatest presidents we've ever had. Franklin Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. We consider them great presidents, but you ready for this? They shredded our Bill of Rights like it was kindling for the fireplace in the Oval Office. Nobody trampled Americans' rights harder and faster 
than Abraham Lincoln and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And might say, wait a minute, Chris, I know enough about world history and American history. No, you're talking about two presidents that were involved in two massive wars, Lincoln with the Civil War, Franklin Roosevelt with World War II. Yes, that's true. But are we not at war right now with Great Britain, with uh, France? Is the cost of American goods not skyrocketing because of our insurance cost and our inability of goods to get over to continental Europe to be able to be traded? We are at war, and Adams is paying the ultimate price, not because necessarily of the Alien and Sedition Acts, but because of a vice president who refuses to support him that the acts were actually good for the American people. Any attempt for Adams to defend himself was lost on the public's ear as the election of 1800 was around the corner and everyone wondered whether a sitting vice president actually had enough popular votes and, by extension, electoral votes to not only unseat his own boss, but to unseat a sitting American president. And if that actually were to happen, that means that there would be a complete change in political ideology that would run the country from the headquarters of the Oval Office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. A change in political philosophy usually was nothing more than a recipe for Armageddon, a recipe for the prophecies of the book of Revelation to come true, a recipe for war. How do events turn out as the election of 1800 nears? Tune back in for the next podcast to find out. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.